I just want to start off with a question. Who do you say that Jesus is? I'm asking that question here in a church where the answer probably sounds simple, but if we were to go outside on the street or if we were to go to downtown Phoenix, we could get a lot more answers. We might meet a Muslim who would tell us that Jesus is the greatest prophet of all time, second only to Muhammad. Or we might meet a Buddhist or a New Ager who would tell us that Jesus was a great moral teacher who taught us to love our enemies. We might meet an atheist who could tell us lots of things. Maybe they would agree with the Buddhist or the New Ager that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Maybe they would say that he was a failed revolutionary who was executed by the Romans for trying to seize power. Maybe they would say he was a bigot, or maybe they would just say he was crazy. Or we might even meet some other people who claim to be Christians. And they might tell us that Jesus was a man who ascended to godhood, who was granted the status of God by his obedience to his father. Or they might say that Jesus is something like the greatest of all angels, the first and greatest of all created beings, second to God, or like God, in so many respects, but not in all. There are lots of answers out there to who Jesus is, but ultimately there is only one truth. So let me ask you again, who do you say that Jesus is? If we truly believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if we truly believe that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, and if we truly believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, then it is vitally important that we get this right. It is vitally important that we know who Jesus is. I heard a sermon a couple weeks ago, and at one point the pastor said that Satan is never so satisfied as when people distort the person of Christ. As long as there have been Christians, there have been people who have preached a false gospel, a false Jesus. And as we walk through our passage together, one of my prayers is that we can take these truths with us into the world to protect both ourselves and others from these distortions. We're gonna be talking about John chapter one, verses one through 18, so you can start turning there if you'd like. But before we actually get started, I wanna talk about John as a whole. If you read through all four Gospels, one after the other, then John just feels weird. The other three, they all tell a lot of the same stories, they all feel like they're basically on the same page. But then John comes in and he's just living in his own world. There are probably a lot of reasons for this, but I think one of the biggest is that John is writing his Gospel years after the others have finished theirs, maybe even decades. He's not interested in telling us his own perspective on the stories that we've already heard. These stories have had plenty of time to circulate, and you could almost say that John is filling in what he believes to be holes in the story, things that he thinks are important, but which haven't yet been written down. But why? Why does John decide years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have finished their Gospels to write a new one? Well, luckily for us, if we jump forward to the end of the book, he tells us. In John 20, 30 through 31, we read, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John wants people to come to faith in Jesus through what he's written, and that can only happen if people know who Jesus is. Even at this point, maybe 40 to 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, people are already preaching false gospels. This section, the beginning of John, can feel a little weird, a little, de- a little disconnected from the rest of the book because the actual narrative doesn't kick in until verse 19. This, th- this first part lays the foundation. John uses symbolism, he uses allusions to the Old Testament to paint a picture of who Jesus is because he wants us to know right off the bat which Jesus and which gospel he is preaching. So we can go ahead and start reading. John chapter one, one through 18, we'll start with one through five. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The very first thing that John chooses to do with his gospel is reference the beginning of the book of Genesis, but he throws a twist. If we were to flip back to Genesis 1-1, we would read the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there is God, just God. God is the only one doing the creating and no one else. And we can say that with a lot of certainty because before God created the heavens and the earth, there was literally nobody else besides God. But now John comes in and he tells us that this word, who is Jesus, was also there in the beginning. The word was there in the beginning and he was with God, but he also was God. If you've been in the church for a while, it's it's easy to just kind of skip over this and read this as just Christianese. But this is probably the absolute clearest statement in the entire Bible of Jesus's relationship to God and what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. Jesus is with God, but he also is God. That idea should blow our minds, but the interesting thing is John doesn't try and explain it for us. He doesn't try to offer up a fancy philosophical explanation. He just tells us the truth. Because sometimes as Christians, our job is to just believe what the Bible tells us. And when the Bible is telling us about the nature of God, sometimes that will mean believing things that we don't fully understand. My wife and I have three children. We have a three-year-old, a 22-month-old, and a seven-week-old. And our three-year-old is deep into the why phase. He's constantly asking us to explain everything. We'll be reading the cat in the hat, and he'll say, why is the fish talking? Why is the cat holding a box? Why is that boy doing that? And I love the curiosity, but sometimes it takes way too long to read a book. (laughs) And unfortunately, It gets even more difficult when he's asking questions about life. He'll say things like, why do we have to go to the dentist? Or why is that person talking to us? Or why do we need to be nice to that person? And I will answer as many questions as I can. But there comes a point where I have to cut him off. Not because I don't want him asking questions, but because as a three-year-old, there are some things that he just doesn't have the mental capacity to understand. His brain hasn't developed enough to understand these larger and more complex topics. And as Christians, it is really easy for us to get caught up in that same cycle when we're talking about God. Because in the end, you don't need to understand how everything works. 
you don't need to understand the intricacies of God's existence within himself. God will never fit into your box, and that is okay. There eventually comes a point where I have to kneel down, get on my son's level, and just say to him, Esten, I know you don't understand, but this is where I need you to trust me. When you're reading the Bible and you find something about God that you don't understand, then do your best to find answers. Don't be afraid to ask questions. If you see God doing something that doesn't fit in with your picture of who God is supposed to be, ask as many questions as you know how to ask. But if eventually all your questions break down, then lean into that feeling. Lean into the God who is beyond your understanding and trust that he will give you all the answers you need to follow him faithfully. Even more, that all of those answers are in the scriptures for us. Moving on to verse three. John says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now once again, when we read Genesis one, God is the only one doing the creating. So now, when Jesus, or when John is telling us that this word is also doing the creating, he is once again equating him with the one true God. In verses four and five, we have, in him, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This probably won't surprise you at this point, but Genesis one, or but light and life are two of the major images from Genesis one and two. The very first words that God speaks after he creates the heavens and the earth is, let there be light. And after God creates Adam from the dust in chapter two, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Again, these are very God-like things to do. And John is putting Jesus right into the middle of them. So really, John is doing two things to convince us that Jesus is God. First, he's telling us that he's God, which is about as explicit as you can get but he is also attributing certain traits and actions to him that the Jewish people would only attribute to God. He is being as clear as he can. He is trying to hammer into our brains that Jesus is God. Because if he's not, then everything that John writes after this is completely worthless. We'll jump back to light soon, but I wanna take a bit of a sidebar, talk about why John decides to refer to Jesus as the word. Because as Christians, most of the time when we talk about the word, we aren't talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Bible. We call the Bible the word of God because it is quite literally the words that God spoke to us. But what do Jesus and the Bible have in common that would allow them both to be called the word? Well, to take a step back from talking about God, what is the purpose of words in general? Why do we talk? Most of the time, it's just to communicate, to give and receive information. And if you want to get more personal, when we talk, we are revealing things about ourselves. When we talk, we reveal how we think, what we're interested in. If you were to sit down with me and have coffee for about an hour, you would have various points here about my wife, my kids, Batman, Godzilla, and Lord of the Rings. Because those are the things that I care about. Those are the things that I invest my time into. I love talking to people about Godzilla movies, the progression of how the character has changed over the decades. I love sitting down with my wife and talking about the intricacies of Batman's relationship with the Joker, and she is very patient <laughs> most of the time. But this is one of the ways that we are very similar to God. When God speaks, he is telling us about himself. The Bible is very important to the Christian life for a lot of reasons, but one of its most important uses is to tell us who God is. 
So when John calls Jesus the word, he's telling us that Jesus reveals God to us. You could even go so far as to say that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God the Father. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The prophets, which is just one way of referring to the Old Testament, they were an extremely important part of God's revelation, but they were still incomplete because it's all about Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we can truly see who God is. Jumping up to the next section, verses six through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So not only is Jesus the word, but he is also the light. But before he gets there, he has this little thing about a guy named John, who confusingly enough is not the same John as the one right in the gospel, but he still plays a very important role in these first few chapters. The other gospels refer to him as John the Baptist, and I think it's fair to say that he is the greatest prophet who ever lived, possibly even the greatest person. Jesus himself said that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. When John comes onto the scene, he causes enough of a stir that some people start thinking that he is actually the Messiah. And even though John is the first to shoot that idea down, apparently it's stuck around long enough and consistently enough that John feels the need to clarify here at the beginning of the gospel that John is not the light. But that doesn't mean he's not important. He still plays a huge role where it says that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. It's pretty unlikely that any of us will ever be mistaken for the long-awaited Messiah. But this is where John sets an incredible example for us as Christians today. John is the greatest prophet and potentially the greatest person who ever lived, but his main role, his essential function is to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now sadly, not everybody did believe through John's witness, but that was the main intention behind it. That was his goal. And as Christians, John's calling mirrors our own. We are not the light. And to act as if we are is to live a lie, a dangerous lie that can have eternal consequences for us and for those around us. We are just like the moon. The only reason that we can see the moon, the only reason that we have its light to see by at night is because it is reflecting the light from the sun. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us to let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We shine the light that we have been given, but only to draw attention to the true light, to Jesus himself. 
And the bigger your platform or your talents, the easier it is to try and hoard the light for yourself. When you stand on a stage, it is easy to start believing that you deserve the praise. When you're an incredible musician, or when you're given a raise at work, or a promotion, or whatever, it's really easy to convince yourself that you have deserved this attention all along. But everything that we have comes from God. Your intelligence, your charisma, your ability to manage people, any talents you have, they are a gift of God. And they are given to you so that you can glorify him. So shine your light, but shine it for him, not for you. In verse nine, John says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is a bit of an escalation. John already told us that Jesus is God and that Jesus not only created the world, but is the source of all light and life in it. But now we see the creator actually entering into his creation. This is not obligatory on God's part. God will, would have been well within his rights to, to create the universe, hit go, and walk away. But ultimately, that is not who our God is. He is a God who has always been intimately involved in his creation. In Genesis 3, we see God walking in the garden, even while Adam and Eve were hiding in shame. In Genesis 11, as mankind is trying to build the Tower of Babel, as they are trying to reach heaven, we see that God comes down to them. We see God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. We see him raising up kings and tearing down kingdoms. And we see him exercising his sovereign rule over all creation. God has always been intimately involved in this world. But this is different because it's not just about God the Father as he was revealed in the Old Testament. This is specifically about the true light, about Jesus. Verse 10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I don't think I can fully articulate how tragic this is. The creator comes into his creation and spends 30 years walking among them. He knows each and every one of them fully as only the creator can. He lives with them, he works with them, he laughs with them, and he teaches them, but they don't recognize him. They don't recognize the one to whom they owe their existence. They don't recognize the one who created the ground that they walk on, who breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And to make things worse, it wasn't just people in general, it was his people the people that he had spent thousands of years cultivating a relationship with. He took one old man named Abraham and turned him in, into an entire nation, a nation that he loved, a nation that he protected. No matter how many times they rejected him and chased after false gods, no matter how many times they spit in his face, he never walked away from them. He stayed faithful. He punished them, but he never forsook them. Because again, that is who our God is. And eventually, his people realized how badly they had messed up. They walked away from the false gods, and they rededicated themselves to him. And they waited for him to fulfill his promise, to send the long-awaited Messiah to redeem them at last. And finally, he came. But they did not know him. And because of that, they could not receive him. With 2,000 years of hindsight, it is really easy to give the Jewish people a hard time. 
But I think it's worth asking yourselves, what would you have done? If you had spent your whole life believing that something is true and something comes along that changes everything, what would you do? Would you honestly consider it, spend time searching the scriptures to see if it lined up? Or would you just outright reject it because it didn't fit into your worldview? The Jewish people rejected Jesus because their system of, inter of interpretation didn't allow for a Messiah like him. They rejected the truth because it went against everything that they had ever thought they knew. We need to recognize that there are some things we could be wrong about. We live in a broken world. We live in a culture that has been twisted by sin. Our views on politics are not infallible. Our parenting philosophy is not perfect. Even our theology could be wrong at some points, or many. Be willing to let the Bible challenge you. When you read the Bible, let it challenge your deepest assumptions about what you know about how the world works. We read about a group of people in Acts called the Bereans. In Acts 17:11, we read that the Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Be like the Bereans. Test everything against the scriptures. When you hear something new about Jesus or God, don't just accept it at face value, no matter how convincing it may sound. Examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Let's go back to the light. Why does John refer to Jesus as the true light? Well again, what does light do? Light shines, light illuminates, and light exposes. If we jump ahead to John 3.19, we read, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People fear the light because they fear being exposed for who they really are. We're afraid of being seen in all of our fullness, and all of our muck, all of our grime, all of our sin. We know what we've done, and even more, we know what we're capable of. But we don't want anyone else to know. Most of the time, we don't even want to be reminded of it. Most people will do anything to avoid acknowledging their darkness. Some people dive into alcohol or pornography to numb themselves so that they, so that they can just shut it off. Others dive into religion putting on a show and checking every Christian box they can think of so that nobody else will see the truth. But none of it changes anything because people who embrace the darkness will always fear the light. But light doesn't have to be scary. There are some people who embrace the light. In verse 12, we see, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. More than anything, the purpose of light is to reveal. There is a theologian named John Stott, and in one of his books he writes, we may say that just as it is in the nature of light to shine, so it is in the nature of God to reveal himself. John calls Jesus the true light for the same reason that he calls him the word, because it is through him that God is revealed to us. 
The true light shines into the darkness of the world and into the darkness of our hearts so that we can see both ourselves and God with a clarity that we never would have thought possible before. And when that happens, when we see God for who he truly is, then how can we not receive him? And how can we not believe in the name of Jesus? And when we receive him, when we believe in his name, then we are given the right to become children of God. Not physical children, but spiritual. Those who receive Jesus are not born of blood. In the ancient world, people believed that pregnancy came about through the mixing of the father's and mother's blood. So this is just John's way of saying that this is not the typical process of procreation. This new birth does not happen because a mother or father wills it to happen. It is a gift of God. You could look at these three ideas, the blood, the will of the flesh, and the will of man, as ways that people try to gain God's favor, or even worse, for reasons that people assume that they already have it. How many people think that they're saved because they grew up in a Christian home, or because their parents were Christian? Or have, you, or have you ever met someone that when you ask them if they're religious, they say something like, no, but my uncle's a pastor. Family ties don't make somebody a Christian. Being raised in a Christian household or having a pastor in the family doesn't make somebody a Christian. Those things are good, those things are useful, but they aren't enough. Or maybe some people like to compare themselves with others, saying things like, I don't do all the bad things that that person does, so I'm probably in a pretty good place with God. Or on the other side, you can have people who are constantly tithing and serving the homeless and cooking people meals and checking all the Christian boxes. But in the end, that is still not enough. All of those things are an important part of what it means to be Christian. It's important to raise our children to understand the gospel. It's important to grow in holiness and walk away from our sin, and it is important to serve sacrificially, but none of that is what saves us. We are saved through a spiritual act of God, through being born again of God, not of ourselves, not of our desires or our wills, but of God. And when we receive the true light, when we receive Jesus and believe in his name, then we become children of God. And this is where John goes into his finale. Starting in verse 14, we see, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Earlier, when I talked about the light coming into the world, I mentioned that it was a, a bit of an escalation. But that is nothing compared to this. Let me read verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, who is God, who has always existed, who has always been intimately involved in his creation, now becomes flesh. Now again, if we've been in the church for any amount of time, this starts to sound like old hat. Yes, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. Probably doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us, but it is. If you look in the Old Testament, 
one of the biggest distinctives of Israelite worship, one of the things that really set them apart from the rest of the world is that they were not permitted to have any physical representations of God. If we go back to the Old Testament and look at the story of the golden calf, we see Aaron, who actually made the calf, saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Israel was not turning their back on God to worship some random God that they had just created. They were trying to create a physical representation of the God who had just saved them out of Egypt. They wanted a God who could go before them to lead them because they just couldn't conceive of a deity that they couldn't see. Every other nation in the world had little statues of their gods, things that they could worship. But again, not our God. Any representation of him that we, that we could create would fall short of who he really is. Any imagery that we try and use will take away from his glory because he is a God that is beyond our understanding. And he takes this very seriously. So seriously that this is one of the Ten Commandments. The second commandment forbids us to make idols, not just of other gods, but of our own God. And he takes this so seriously that 3,000 men of Israel were killed as a result of this little incident with the golden calf. We'll come back to John soon, but first I want to point out the irony in this whole golden calf debacle. At the beginning of Exodus 32, right before Aaron makes the calf, the people say to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. God had summoned Moses to speak with him up on the top of Mount Sinai, and he had probably been up there for weeks at this point. And the rest of Israel was just sitting at the bottom, bottom of the mountain, playing cards or whatever it is that they did for the fun back then. And eventually they started getting antsy. They had never spoken with God like Moses had, and they still didn't understand the kind of God that he was. They were so desperate to see God that they committed one of the ultimate blasphemies against him. But the irony is, is that while Moses was on the mountain, God was talking to him about building a tabernacle, a place for him to rest among his people. They wanted a little statue, but God was planning a massive dwelling place for himself. Israel would literally be able to see his glory descending into it. And this is always what God had planned. But the tabernacle was, was only the beginning. If we jump back into John 1, I want to look at one word in verse 14, the word dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's gospel is written in Greek, and the word which we translate as dwelt has a very particular place in the Greek translation of the Old Testament because it is the same word for tabernacle. Probably sounds a bit clunky, but we could even translate this as the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was only a shadow of what was coming because what was coming was Jesus. The tabernacle was the first real instance of God dwelling with his people, but there were still so many layers of separation. The people couldn't actually see God because God's glory was way too much for them to handle. Even when Moses came back from, even when Moses came down from the mountain after talking to God, his face was glowing with the residual glory just from being near God, and the, the people couldn't even handle that. He had to put a veil over his face because it made them uncomfortable. Or in Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah literally panicking 
because he came too close to God's glory and he is immediately overwhelmed by the weight of his own sin. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this separation between God and his creation. Like I said, God has always been involved, but he has to keep himself at a, at a distance because as sinful people, we cannot handle his glory. But look at what John tells us in the second half of verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus puts God's glory on full display. It doesn't look like it did in the Old Testament with the shining faces, but because he is God, Jesus shares fully in the glory that we see in God the Father, and that is put on display through Jesus being full of grace and truth. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this phrase being used to describe God, and that phrase is steadfast love and faithfulness. The wording is a little different here, but I think that this is what John is trying to remind us of. In the Old Testament, we see God telling us who he is, but in Jesus, we can see who he is. Jesus shows us the truthfulness of God by his willingness to confront the sins of his people and by never lowering the standards that his father had already put in place. And he shows us the grace of God by healing, by forgiving sins, by providing food for the hungry. In Jesus, we see the perfect blending of grace and truth, of justice and mercy. As people, and as Christians in particular, it's easy for us to lean too, too, too far one way or the other. We either extend grace to the point of allowing sin, or we push truth too hard, or we push truth too hard and we alienate those who are already broken. But Jesus shows us that neither of those are the answer. Jesus did not alternate between showing grace and truth, because everything that he did was dripping with both. And that ultimate expression of grace and truth is the cross. In one decisive action, he showed us that God's standards cannot be compromised, that, this, that the punishment for sin is truly death. But by dying in our place for our sins, he extended to us the ultimate grace. So today, as Christians, this is hard for us. How do we extend both grace and truth to a world filled with sin? I think it's fair to say that based on, what we, based on how we see Jesus acting, based on, based on how we see him interacting with the world around him, I think it's fair for us to start with grace. Every time we see him interacting with somebody, any, anybody that we would consider a sinner, he always starts with grace. Because in the end, grace gives you a platform from which to speak truth. Verse 15 kind of breaks the line of thought just to remind us again that John the Baptist is not the Messiah. But author John goes on in verse 16 to impress on us the magnitude of this grace that we've been given through Jesus. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The fullness of grace and truth which are embodied in Jesus lead to uncontainable grace for those of us who choose to accept it. Grace upon grace, grace never ending. One grace constantly replacing the one that came before so that we are never without. Verse 17 points us back to the Old Testament by saying, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, like the tabernacle, was one step in the plan. Because in the law, we see elements of both grace and truth. 
we see how high the standards are for God's people, and we see that we will never be able to meet them by our own power. But even for Israel, they were never without hope. They were given festivals as reminders of what God had done for them, and they were given sacrifices so that they could be forgiven for their sins. But as far as Israel's experience of the law, there is a very heavy emphasis on truth. But Jesus changed that. God has always been a perfect marriage of grace and truth, but it was not until Jesus that our experience finally tilted towards grace. The truth is still there, the standards are still there, but we have the freedom of knowing that those have been fulfilled on our behalf. John closes out this section with verse 18. As he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Because this is the whole point. This is why Jesus came, to make God known to us. Up until Jesus, nobody had ever seen God. Nobody could see God because there was a separation. A separation that was there for our our own protection, to protect us from God's glory, from the full effects of our sin. But Jesus changed that. Because he is the only God, because he has been at the Father's side since the beginning, he is able to show us his glory. He is able to perfectly meld grace and truth together in such a way that as children of God, we are given a bottomless well of grace. Because ultimately, that is what God wants for us. That is who God is, and that is the God who is perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. I wanna close by doing something that I'm pretty sure you haven't seen done from the pulpits, and that's talking about Captain America. I kind of alluded to this before, but I'm a big fan of what you could call nerd culture, and a big part of that culture is superheroes. So the third Captain America movie, Civil War, came out in 2016. And in this movie, the world decides that superheroes are too dangerous to be left to their own devices. They save a lot of people, but they also create an incredible amount of damage. So, the United Nations decides that all superheroes either need to submit to their authority and essentially become agents of the United Nations, or they can retire. Any who refused would be treated as criminals. Half of them, led by Iron Man, supported this decision, and the other half, led by Captain America, refused. The government sends their new superhero employees after the rebels, and it does not end well for most of them. Captain America had always supported his government. He had always been a symbol of everything that America stood for, but this is one plan that he just couldn't get behind. Not only would he not be allowed to help everybody in need, but the government had already turned against him once. What would happen when the people pulling the strings, the ones controlling the most powerful people on the planet, decided to start pushing their own agenda? It just wasn't worth the risk for him. So he becomes public enemy number one. There's a speech given in the movie by a friend of of Cap's, but if you read the comic that the movie's based on, he actually says it himself, and it's about as famous as a speech given in a comic book can be. And this is what he says. Doesn't matter what the press says. Doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say. Doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. This nation was founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe, no matter the odds or the consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a river of truth, like a tree beside the river of truth, and tell the whole world, no, 
you move. He had a conviction that most of us should be jealous of, and that was a conviction that was based on a country, a country that had been around for less than 300 years and will one day pass away. But our conviction is based on God's word. It is based on the testimony of the creator himself, and it is the testimony about his son. So in the end, this is my challenge to you. Don't let this world push you around. Know what the Bible says about Jesus. Know who he is and what he's done. And when the world tries to change your mind, when it tries to persuade you that Jesus isn't who the Bible tells us he is, then you plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and you tell the whole world, no, you move. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your testimony about Jesus. We thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you that he is the perfect blending of grace and truth, Lord. That through him, we are able to to know you in a way that was never before possible, in a way that we shouldn't be able to know you as sinful people. And we pray that as we go out into this world, that you give us conviction about who Jesus is. Lord, give us the conviction to push back against the world. Lord, to refuse to stand down, to refuse to to refuse to let this world tell us who you are. God, we thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And it is in his name we pray, amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.